Let's, uh, let's pray. Go ahead and make your way in and uh, have a seat, and uh, we'll open in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your love for us. You're a, uh, you're a good Father who gives good gifts, and so uh, we're grateful for an opportunity for us to uh, look to the past and, uh, and to see those who have gone before us and uh, to commend what is excellent uh, in them, your grace to them, and then also to, uh, to beware some of the... Uh, the uh, the things that they have struggled with or fallen into, and so I pray that you would help us, encourage us as we continue to uh, to study church history. We ask these things because you're good and you do good, so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, thanks for coming uh, this morning to Theological Quipping Class. As, uh, as we've mentioned, we are looking at church history. <laughs> That's what we've been doing all uh, year, and so today we are going to uh, talk about uh, Jonathan Edwards. And so every pastor, every theologian, has uh, someone or some ones that uh, they would consider kind of a theological or pastoral hero. Uh, you probably know this, but Zach loves Augustine and he loves Luther. Uh, Jared loves the early church father Athanasius. Tim probably loves some obscure German theologian or something that you've never heard of. But for me, I really love uh, uh, guys that are named John. And so I look through church history and I can find all of these guys, John Calvin, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards. In fact, even uh, the, the, the modern pastor who has the, had the most influence on my life, John Piper, is also named John. In fact, it was Piper, uh, way back in 2002, after I had just gotten saved, who first led me to read Jonathan Edwards, and that was one of the factors in uh, why I got a degree in historical uh, theology. So if you're looking for a good theological hero, I would commend to you the guy that we're studying today, Jonathan Edwards. And that's not just my opinion, by the way. The famous pastor Robert Murray McShane, you might have heard of the McShane <coughs> excuse me, Bible reading plan, uh, he said, uh, he, he on uh, June 22nd of 1832, he wrote in his diary, probably Dear Diary, he wrote, I bought Jonathan Edwards' works. How feeble does my spark of Christianity appear beside such a sun? But even his uh, was a borrowed light, and the same source is still open to me. <clears throat> Jonathan, uh, John Wesley called Edwards, quote, that great man. The Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers wrote a uh, really influential sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You can find it online. I highly commend it to you. But he wrote this of Edwards. He said, never was there a happier combination of great power with great piety. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton professor, the champion of, uh, of orthodoxy as liberalism is taking over uh, American uh, seminaries and churches and, uh, and so forth. He wrote, Jonathan Edwards, saint and uh, metaphysician, revivalist and theologian, stands out as the one figure of real greatness in the intellectual life of colonial America. And this isn't nearly as influential, it's just interesting. In prepping for this lesson, I read that the congressman Newt Gingrich uh, he actually considered Edwards the most underappreciated, quote, founding father of America because his influence looms so large on uh, the founding of the country just a, uh, about a generation or so after him. In fact, he is thought, Jonathan Edwards is thought by many to be the greatest mind to come out of North America. Not just the greatest biblical mind, not just the greatest theological mind, but mind in general. Jonathan Edwards was this intellectual giant. In addition to studying theology, he had an interest in philosophy. He studied uh, enlightenment thinkers, like we talked about last week, guys like uh, John Locke. He was interested in things like physics. He, uh, he had read uh, uh, the works of uh, Newton. Even entomology, the study of, uh, of insects. And so he pretty much devoured any things that he could uh, get his hands on. So Edwards was influential. He was intelligent, highly intelligent. And yet at the same time, he wasn't this cold academic. right? He, he, he was what we always want to commend here at Parkway. He was this idea of orthodoxy. On fire, this union, this fusion of both head and heart. In fact, it was this lack of fire, this lack of heart among many of those around him that would often get him into trouble. And we'll talk about that uh, in uh, a little bit. One of the things that we won't talk about is Q&A. We probably won't have time for Q&A today, so if, uh, if I don't answer some question that's really eating at you, feel free to shoot me an email or something. All right, let's back up. We've talked before about, uh, about Protestantism and it's kind of coming to uh, the, 
the land of, uh, of England, and it had a bit of a rocky start in England. All right? So England was originally Catholic, as all of Europe was, and then it goes Protestant. Uh, and then it goes back to Catholic, uh, depending upon who is the successor to the, uh, the crown. And, uh, and then it goes to Protestant again. And it remains Protestant theologically, but uh, we've talked before about how it retains a lot of l- l- the liturgical forms and traditions of Roman Catholicism. So Anglicanism was a bit too Roman Catholic uh, y for a group of people, and they were called who? The Puritans, right? Why were they called the Puritans? They wanted to, they wanted to purify uh, the church. They wanted to purify the church in particular of all of these Romanisms, all of these aspects of Roman Catholic tradition and liturgy. And some of those eventually made their way to the New World on the Mayflower. There were about 100 or so persons that landed at Cape Cod, Massachusetts in 1620, and eventually they would spread throughout New England. A few years after the Mayflower arrives, there's other ships that are arriving uh, uh, relatively uh, frequently. And so a few years later, a guy named William Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' great-great-grandfather, makes the journey with his uh, family. So by the time that Jonathan was actually born uh, in the colonies, his family had already been there for about 80 years. So Jonathan Edwards, he's born in 1703. He's the fifth child of a, uh, a large family. He's actually the only boy. He had four older sisters, and he had six younger sisters. Each of his ten sisters were said to be around six feet tall, leading to the common saying at the time that there were 60 feet of Edwards' girls. All right, you can see a picture of, uh, of Edwards there. In addition to his immediate family, there were lots of grandparents, there were uncles, there were aunts, there were cousins and so forth in the area since the family had been in the colonies for a few generations. And this is a time period where it was relatively normal to have 10, 11, 12 children, whatever it, uh, it might be. And so he has a lot of family in the area. In fact, his grandfather, you have a picture of him as well, his grandfather Solomon Stoddard was a legend in the area. He's the minister of the largest church in New England at the time, a church in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is where Edwards would later minister. Not sure if you saw the movie My Cousin Vinny, but there's a scene where this character, Mona Lisa Vito, is describing her qualifications as a mechanic, and she says, Well, my father was a mechanic. His father was a mechanic, my mother's father was a mechanic, my three brothers were mechanics, four uncles on my father's side are mechanics. That's kind of Jonathan Edwards, except instead of mechanics, just replace that with ministers. Ministry was this family business for the Edwards. Jonathan's dad, uh, Timothy, he was a minister. His maternal and uh, paternal grandfathers were both ministers. Even one of his great-grandfathers was a minister, and his great-great-great-grandfather as well. So it wasn't surprising that uh, Jonathan Edwards himself inclined toward ministry. He attended college at the newly founded Yale. I think Yale was founded maybe five or six or so years before he got there, maybe ten. But uh, sources differ on the exact age Uh, of Edwards at his graduation, but he was definitely pretty young, anywhere between 14 and 18. And a few years later, he received his master's from there as well, graduating at the top of his class as the valedictorian. At the time, to even get into Yale, you had to be fluent in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. So again, he was fairly sharp, one of the greatest minds to ever come out of North America. By the way, you'll, you'll notice that I say North America and not America because Edwards wasn't American. Why not? Because America didn't exist, right? So we're talking about the early 1700s. So uh, he was actually a British colonial. And, uh, and so while he was at Yale in the summer of 1721, exactly 300 years ago, he experienced what he would consider his conversion. Right? He had previously been religious. Again, he grows up in this religious family, very influential family, all doing ministry. He had previously been religious, but he would later say that his heart was frozen until this point in pride, until the heat of the gospel thawed it that summer of 1721. Here are a few of his quotes on the experience. He says, prayer seemed to be natural to me as the breath by which the inward burnings of my heart had vent. And then also, I was brought to a new sense of things, to an inward sweet delight in God and divine things, quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. I began to have a new kind of apprehension, an idea of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. So that was 1721. At this point, he's still working on his master's degree. After he graduates from Yale, he worked as an itinerant preacher for a while. 
And then he goes back to Yale as a tutor. But in 1726, when he was about 23, his life takes this uh, major turn. As mentioned earlier, his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, uh, is this living legend. He's a minister in Northampton, the, the largest church in the area. And uh, he was kind of getting up there in age. He was in, in his early 80s, which was really old in that period, considering that the average life expectancy was less than 50 and so he needed some help around the church because this is a very large church and, uh, and he's getting old. And so he invited his grandson, Jonathan, to join him as a fellow minister at Northampton. Northampton, Massachusetts at the time was about a thousand or so uh, residents, all of whom were given four acres of land uh, when they first settled there. But Edwards was actually given ten acres because ministers were highly respected. Right? They were the celebrities of the day. All right? Young kids didn't have posters of Colonial Bieber in Brittany or something like that on their walls. They would have a guy like Stoddard or, uh, or Edwards or, or Wesley or Whitfield or something. By the way, I know I have a vested interest, but I think things were a lot better back then whenever people uh, you know, aspired to be a pastor or a theologian rather than an actor or a musician or social media influencer or something. So this was 1726. He's 23. He moves to uh, Northampton. He would lab labor there for the next 23 years of his life. The year after moving to Northampton, uh, the 24-year-old Edwards married 17-year-old Sarah Pierpont, daughter of James Pierpont. Anyone want to guess what James did for a living? He was also a minister, right? Uh, uh, Sarah's, uh, Sarah's uh, dad was a minister. He, uh, Sarah's grandfather was one of the founders of Yale. So this was a pretty prestigious family. This is kind of a colonial power couple like J-Lo and, uh, and Ben or Kanye and Kim, but without all the divorce uh, and that kind of stuff. And so that was, uh, that was them. Uh, Edwards really loved Sarah. He doted on her. By all accounts, they had a really good marriage, though it was filled with hardship. Most things in life were filled with hardship back in the 18th century. But she was a, a match for some of his eccentricities. In fact, I read a book about their marriage a few years back titled Marriage to a Difficult Man because he had a number of these strange habits. One of my favorite anecdotes about Edwards, uh, one, of his, uh, one of the guys that he discipled said that he generally studied about 13 to 14 hours a day. That's according to Samuel Hopkins, who had uh, been discipled by him and labored alongside him at Northampton. In fact, when his parishioners would come over to his house, uh, uh, to his parsonage, he'd be in the study there. And then when dinner was ready, he would kind of come out of his study. He would eat with the guests. He would visit with them at the table. And then he would just retire to the study while the guests simply stayed there, all right? Next time some of you come over, I'm going to try that. Or I'm just going to be in my office, and then you come over. I'm going to eat with you, and then I'm just going to go back, all right? Now, why did he study so much? Why was this such a priority for him? Because he felt like his primary job as a pastor, as a minister, is prayer and preaching. That's what he felt like. His, his primary responsibility, his ultimate goal, his task is to pray and to preach the word. So he figured the best way to minister to his people was to feed them the word. And if he's going to feed them the word, he himself has to be feeding on the word. Now notice how dramatically evangelical culture has changed uh, here on that. I'll, I'll tell you a, a short anecdote about our own Jared Lawson. A couple of years ago, when he first started here, I noticed that sometimes whenever, he, uh, whenever I would walk into a room where he was, he would close his computer, right? And that's generally kind of a yellow flag, right? You think someone's doing something uh, really shady. I've known Jared a long time. I actually officiated his wedding. I know that he pursues godliness. And, and so I didn't assume the worst, but I did have to ask. I said, what are you doing? Why, why are you always closing your computer? And, uh, and so I found out the reason is because he was watching his old football highlights. And that's not really why he was doing it. <laughs> That would be funny, though, if he was doing that. Here's the real story. While in seminary, he worked at, a, uh, at another church. And uh, while he was working at that church, he wouldn't be allowed to prepare lessons or sermons on church time. So whenever any other pastors at the church would walk by, uh, and he was working on some sort of Bible study or doing something religious, he'd have to quickly close his computer so he wouldn't get caught doing Bible stuff. By the way, he quit going to that church uh, soon thereafter. So that's where culture is now, right? A, a, a guy who actually works uh, for a church, doing ministry, gets in trouble for what? For preparing to preach, for preparing to teach the Bible. How scandalous, right? But back in the 18th century, ministers really knew their primary job was preaching and teaching. So Edwards poured himself into that task. 
He might have overdone it. We'll talk about that uh, shortly. All in all, though, I think this was mostly an admirable trait for him. Though he didn't make it a habit to kind of visit his people uh, all that often, he did let them know that his door was always open. If they had any struggles, if they had any questions or whatever it might be, he would gladly break from his studies to counsel them, to pray with them. And uh, the Edwards were constantly hosting family and others who were traveling through the area. So it wasn't kind of completely detached from these other secondary pastoral duties. Uh, the Edwards actually had a reputation for being hospitable. But he moves to Northampton, 1726. He's married 1727. He has his first child in 1728. So it's quite the, the whirlwind for his uh, first few years. He'll eventually have eight daughters and three sons. And those children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so forth will go on to have quite the influence on later Amer American culture. For instance, his descendants include scores of clergymen, 13 presidents of higher learning, most of them uh, in the Ivy League, 65 university professors, multiple senators and governors, nearly 100 military officers, and so forth. One of his daughters even married uh, Aaron Burr Sr., who was the president of uh, Princeton at the time. Their child, Aaron Burr Jr., is known for two things. Number one, he was the third president of the United States. What's the second one? Yeah, he, uh, he killed uh, Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda in a duel, right? And so, uh, so the very influential family. His first child is born in 1728. And the next year, his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, dies. Edwards is uh, left as the main pastor there at Northampton. And Edwards is concerned about the, uh, the, the spiritual state of his people. In particular, he, he thinks that they seem dull. They seem uh, not like boring. They seem lethargic. Right? In regards to spiritual things, there's no thirst, there's no hunger, there's no real desire uh, for uh, the beauty of the gospel. Perhaps he thinks that it's their pride. Uh, they have this reputation for being the preeminent church in the area. And so he's concerned. Everybody in town goes to church, but very few of them seem to have any sort of concern for godliness or spiritual things. Edwards would say, they come to meeting from one Sabbath to another and hear God's word, but all that can be said to them won't awaken them, won't persuade them to take pains that they may be saved. So that goes on for a few years. Then in 1734, something fascinating happened. Uh, history will later call this kind of the first grave, uh, first wave of the, uh, the Great Awakening. Suddenly you have these people in Northampton, people who had attended church for their entire lives. They suddenly begin to be awakened from their spiritual slumber. By some estimates, as many as 300 people are going to be converted there in Northampton over the period of a couple of years, which is crazy. Again, in a, in a town with a population slightly more than 1,000 for 300 people to be converted is huge. And it was so unusual, it was so crazy that word begins to spread and people are writing Edward's letters asking what's going on. So Edwards decides to write a book to describe the events. Now, back in the day when bookstores existed... Right? You might go into a Barnes & Noble or you might go into a Mardell. You look around the Christian living section and uh, you would find books and their titles would be things like Foolproof or Fireproof or this is a real book that I just looked up, Fierce Free and Full of Fire. And you have no idea what in the world is that book about, right? It's like a fireman's guide or something like that. You have no idea what it's about. That was not the case back then. You don't even need to read the book. You know exactly what it's about. The title of Edward's book was a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages of the county of Hampshire in the province of the Massachusetts Bay in New England, right? I'll put an excerpt there for you. You can read that. So he writes this little book, and it's, uh, it's read. It's read by a number of guys. It's read by a guy named Isaac Watts back in England. Isaac Watts decides to help publish it. And even writes the foreword. You can see his uh, name there on the, the picture that I included there, Dr. Watts. Who was Isaac Watts? Well, he was the author of a number of songs that you're familiar with, like When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross and Joy to the World. So his name is attached to Edward's book, and it goes viral. John Wesley reads it. George Whitfield read it. 
And everybody is reading Edward's account. In other words, he's kind of a big uh, deal. And this would cause a bit of family drama back in the, uh, the state. Some of his relatives didn't like that Cousin John was becoming a bit of a celebrity. They think he's becoming a bit too big for his uh, britches. And that will be kind of a, a little fault line, a little crack that will eventually cause this huge rift that we'll get to shortly. But this revival, this little foretaste, prelude to revival, lasts for a year or so, but eventually settles down and things go back to normal for a few years. Edwards actually writes about this tendency that you see throughout history for times of revival to, for times of revival to be followed by periods of uh, kind of normalcy. He writes, uh, in addition to the saving work of the Spirit of God, and, uh, and by which many are truly converted, there was always what the Puritans called a common work. That is to say, people get a taste of eternal things, they become serious, their lives change, but they have never fundamentally become Christians. And after a while, this common work of the Spirit doesn't remain with them. They go back to the world or back to formal religion. In other words, some people are savingly converted. Some just kind of experience some good things. And so there's this cultural transformation, but eventually that common grace just kind of settles back uh, to, uh, to the norm. So things kind of gravitate back to the norm for the general populace until about 1740, which is sometimes seen as the formal beginning of the Great Awakening. This time the revival wasn't just happening around Northampton, but it's, uh, uh, though it's fairly common to trace kind of the beginnings uh, of the revival back to a particular sermon that was preached uh, by Edwards in his home church and then again in Connecticut a few months later. Anyone know the name of that sermon? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, probably the most famous sermon uh, ever preached in North American history. When I was a kid, it was required reading. I'll read a part of it that's uh, in your notes. I included more there for some context, but I'll read part of it. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. And is dreadfully provoked, his wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you uh, were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep, and there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. So it's super chipper, right? It's the kind of thing everybody loves. Now, a quick word about this. Lots of people, you just read that. If that's your only exposure to Edwards, you might just think he's just all doom and gloom, hell and uh, brimstone. Nothing could actually be further from the truth. In reality, most of his sermons actually concentrated on the love of God, on the mercy of Christ. But here he's using this imagery of hell uh, in order to awaken his people because his people, he, see, uh, he, he thinks, are really indifferent to these divine things. They don't care about sin. They don't care about judgment. They don't care about hell and so forth. And this particular sermon is sometimes seen as the catalyst for the Great Awakening. And the ripples of this revival would spread not only uh, from Northampton, but would spread throughout New England uh, uh, down the eastern seaboard. And Edwards kind of uses this analogy. If you remember the story from the Gospels uh, of the disciples fishing all night, and they don't catch anything, and then at the word of the Lord, they let down the nets, and, and, uh, and, and the nets are absolutely full. That's the, uh, the analogy that Edwards would use for the, uh, the awakening, that, uh, that colonial pastors had been laboring for years and years and years with relatively little fruit, and suddenly there is this new dawning, there is this awakening. And this will last a couple of years. It's so significant that actually Jared's going to talk about it in depth uh, next week, so I won't go as in uh, detail on the awakening in particular. Just know you can't understand the Great Awakening without understanding Edwards, and you can't understand Edwards without understanding the Great uh, Awakening. It's kind of like trying to understand the Reformation without knowing about Luther and Calvin or about uh, the 90s uh, Cowboys dominance without Jimmy Johnson or something like that. So one thing to mention here regarding the, uh, the um, uh, awakening, though, is that there is this extensive criticism 
that uh, Edwards is going to, uh, to face, all right? There's going to be uh, criticism of the revival in general, but also of Edwards in particular. And, uh, and so some uh, of his fellow preachers felt like uh, the, uh, the revival was too emotional. There was too much emotionalism, too much fanaticism. And to kind of understand that critique, we need to understand the culture of that day. If, uh, if someone were to ask you to describe evangelicalism today, you would say probably in general it tends to exalt what? The heart or the head? Modern evangelical, what does it exalt? The heart, right? And, uh, and so in Edward's day, it was kind of the exact opposite. So for many of the critics of the awakening, it was almost like they emphasized the head to the neglect of the heart, all right? One of the things we try to do here is we want to, we want to try to say, you don't need to lower either, right? You need both of them. And, uh, but in his day, there seemed to be this overemphasis on the head to the neglect of, uh, of the heart. And so, uh, in other words, any emotion for a lot of, uh, of Edward's contemporaries was too emotional for them. Now, there were certainly excesses. Uh, Edwards is actually going to write about that. But Edwards was also say, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, all right? Emotion isn't the problem. Emotion that's untethered to the mind is bad. Emotion that's untethered to the gospel and to the scriptures and so forth uh, is bad. But emotion itself is not a bad thing. It's actually good. We should be emotional about the gospel. Or to use a better word, we should have affections uh, for the gospel. That's uh, what Edwards would say. We should have these religious affections. That's actually a title of, uh, of one of his books that sought to distinguish these true uh, demonstrations of affection from these false counterfeit emotions. So in this book, Religious Affections, Edwards would argue that true Christianity is not revealed by the quantity or the intensity of your religious emotions, but is rather present where a heart has been changed to love God and to seek his pleasure. And so he writes uh, in Religious Affections, He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only, without affection, never is engaged in the business of religion. The Holy Scriptures do everywhere place religion very much in the affections, such as fear, hope, love, hatred, desire, joy, sorrow, gratitude, compassion, and zeal. So Edwards would say, with any fire, there is this danger that it could get out of control, but the solution is to build a stronger fireplace, right? Not to extinguish the fire. But that was one critique of the revival, that there was, uh, it was based on emotionalism or fanaticism. Another uh, uh, critique was aimed against this new type of preaching, this type of preaching that emphasized man's sin, that sought to call sinners to repentance, that rebuked their sloth and their indifference and their apathy. And that was generally not the style of preaching in the colonies before this. So Edwards and others were seen as kind of upending the cultural uh, norm, the, the uh, entire philosophy of, of preaching. So Edwards would write of his fellow minister's tendency to, as he would say, sheath the sword of the Spirit. He would write, they ought indeed to be thorough in preaching the Word of God without mincing the matter at all. In handling the sword of the Spirit as the ministers of the Lord of hosts, they ought not to be mild and gentle. They are not to be gentle and moderate and searching and awakening the conscience, but should be sons of thunder. All right, so that was a second critique, though, that, uh, that people didn't like this new style of preaching that would call people to uh, repentance for their sloth and indifference. Another critique related to that same critique of their new style of preaching was that this awakening was by and large decidedly Calvinistic. There were some exceptions like it, uh, with John Wesley, but uh, in general this will be a huge distinction between the first great awakening and the second great awakening that we'll talk about uh, later this semester. By this time... The Enlightenment rationalism, the emphasis on uh, our ability to understand and so forth, Enlightenment rationalism had taken root in the colonies and with it a slide towards Arminianism. Right? You see this relationship between Enlightenment theology or philosophy and uh, Arminian theology. In fact, both Harvard and Yale, though they had kind of started off with Calvinistic uh, convictions, had drifted toward Arminian assumptions in the preceding decades. And that will be a factor in the, uh, the, the founding of, uh, of Princeton. Uh, Princeton was actually founded as a, uh, a counter-influence to them. Princeton was founded on these Calvinistic uh, assumptions. But many of the pastors, uh, many of Edward's contemporaries, didn't like the fact that uh, the awakening was uh, Calvinistic. And that was what fueled the revival. 
And lastly, there was just a, a bit of jealousy uh, that played no small part in the uh, criticism because Edwards uh, and others like him were becoming uh, much larger and having more of an influence. So the, the awakening lasts a few years. Then it calms down again. Again, we've already seen that tendency uh, that Edwards talked about. And uh, during this few years, uh, Edwards is working uh, vehemently to kind of defend certain aspects of things that we saw during the revival while also correcting other excesses that were seen during the revival. And during this time where he's kind of reflecting upon the revival and he's writing about it, uh, the revival has died down and he has a visitor. In May 1747, a guy named David Brainerd, who was uh, known as the missionary to the Indians, uh, he comes to Northampton and the Edwards take him in as a guest and they care for him. There's a picture of Brainerd on horseback. You see some teepees and Native Americans uh, in the background. By this time... Brainerd is already dying of tuberculosis. He's in his 20s, but he's dying of tuberculosis. In fact, he will actually die later that year at the Edwards home. And on his deathbed, he would write this to his brother. Do not be discouraged because you see your elder brothers in the ministry die early, one after another. I declare, now I am dying. I would not have spent my life otherwise for the whole world. So not only does Brainerd die, but Edward's daughter, Jerusha, who cared for him and might have had a romantic relationship with Brainerd, um, uh, that's, uh, history's a little sketchy on that, but she also contracted tuberculosis and died a few months later. But this relatively short visit of just a few months uh, in Northampton by uh, Brainerd would have this profound influence on the world as Edwards would find Brainerd's diary and he would publish it. And uh, so you can, in fact, today you can read the diary of, of, of David Brainerd. I would highly encourage you to do that. It's a great book. And that book would be a catalyst for the modern missions movement. This was the, mission, the first missionary biography to ever be published. And it was carried all the way to India and China with guys like William Carey, Henry Martin, speaking of his influence on them. We'll talk about the modern missions movement uh, later in the semester. Now, around this time, Brainerd is in Northampton and another controversy is stewing. This time it's stewing over the issue of communion. Remember Edward's grandfather, uh, Solomon Stoddard. He's this legend in the area. and He had taught that everyone in the community, everyone in Northampton, uh, at this point everyone in Northampton is actually kind of a member of the church, and so everyone in the community could take communion, even if you didn't profess personal faith in Christ, all right? Uh, as, long as, uh, as long as you're not living this sort of openly scandalous sort of life, you're welcome at the table. But Edward's views begin to change because he sees all of this indifference, all this sloth, all of this apathy among his people. There's no actual delight uh, or godliness or whatever it might be. And so his, his uh, views begin to change, and he began to worry that the people were trusting in their morality. They were trusting in their good behavior rather than conversion. And so Edwards begins to think maybe it's necessary for members of the church to actually have to make some sort of profession of faith in Christ. And this is a huge deal, all right? It doesn't sound strange for us. This is a huge deal. Edwards is going against the opinion of a legend who had labored there for 60 years. This would be like, you know, the successor of Chuck Swindoll or John MacArthur or John Piper or something coming in and kind of repudiating this major platform of their ministry. So in December 1748, a man comes forward. He wants to join the church there in Northampton. And Edwards asks, do you profess personal faith in Christ? And, uh, and the guy says, no, I don't think that that's necessary for me to be a member of the church. And, uh, and so Edwards says, well, I think it is. So they appeal to the uh, committee. And, uh, and the uh, committee actually agrees with the guy. Right? Not Edwards, they agree with the other guy, which sounds crazy to us. Why does it sound so crazy to us? Because we have been influenced by Edwards. Even if, if you've never read a word of Jonathan Edwards, his influence looms over American Christianity. Our influence, our, uh, our, um, uh, our dependence, our reliance, our, the importance we place on regeneration, on conversion, all those kinds of things, that is a direct influence of Jonathan Edwards. But Edwards is going to offer this compromise. All right? So he says, you have to profess faith in Christ in order to be a member of the church, in order to take communion. This guy says, I don't think that that's necessary. 
the church committee who kind of oversees all of the, uh, the decisions of the church, kind of basically their version of elders or something like that, they say, we actually agree with the guy. We don't think that that's necessary because nobody else in the area thinks that's necessary. And uh, so Edwards offers a compromise. He says, let me explain my reasons. At least let me uh, have an opportunity to kind of tell you why I land where I land. Let me preach a couple of sermons laying out why it's biblical to withhold communion unless there's a profession of faith. And the committee says, nope, can't do that. They're fearful that he will confuse or convince the church. So they actually agree on another compromise, which is that Edwards will write a book, and if that doesn't convince the committee, that they can fire him. So he writes a book, and it's called Food for Thought. That's not really what it's called. I wish that was the title. Nothing that he writes has a short title, right? Instead, it was a humble inquiry into the rules of the Word of God concerning the qualifications requisite to a complete standing and full communion in the visible Christian church. So he writes this book. It takes him a little bit of time. He gets it published. It arrives, and nobody reads it, all right? Almost literally, something like six copies uh, were sold, according to something that I read. So why not? Well, at least partly because of his extended family. Remember how I said uh, earlier, I mentioned earlier, a number of his uh, relatives lived in the area and uh, and, and a number of them had been uh, kind of wounded by the fact that uh, he was becoming a bit of a a legend. And, uh, And so he has a number of relatives in the area and things begin to take a dark turn here because they're mad. They're mad because he's not only besmirching the reputation of their, their pastor, but their grandfather. All right, so they begin this hallway campaign against Edwards. And by the time the book arrives, the die is already cast. So Edwards, once again, he asked for permission. Can I at least preach on this? Nobody read my book. Can I at least preach a couple of sermons on this? But they deny that request. And so long story short, he's actually fired. Though he still preaches two Sundays after being fired. He fills in a dozen or so times over the next year as they look for a new minister. By the way, that's something that you see in the life of Calvin and the life of Edwards. Both of them unrighteously removed from their church, and yet both of them were gracious and compassionate in their responses. All right, and uh, so 1750, Edwards is voted out, a vote of 230 to 23, so it's not even close. For a year, he bounces around trying to find work. Finally, he finds a small church in uh, Stockbridge, which is about 40 miles from Northampton. It's on the, uh, the edge of the wilderness. And uh, he was excited because there is this potential for outreach to Native Americans, right? Why is he so excited about that? Well, unlike the colonials, uh, the Native Americans are unbelievers, but at least they know it, right? And so that's the difference that he sees there. And, uh, and so he's tired of working with people who just don't care. And so he is, uh, he's excited about this opportunity to go. The only problem was that Edwards had relatives, in Stockbridge also, right? They just kind of spread out. Just like in Northampton, they try to get him removed there in Stockbridge. This time the church actually sticks with him and his relatives actually move uh, instead. So he labors there in Stockbridge for about six years. And then in 1757, his son-in-law, Aaron Burr Sr., dies. Remember Ed, uh, that Burr was the president of Princeton. So the trustees at Princeton ask Edwards to take over as president. And Edwards is initially uh, reluctant, but he eventually uh, relents. Uh, A a lot of the reason is because he sees that uh, with the direction of Yale and Harvard and where they're going in terms of their uh, theological, in his mind, compromises, he wants to uh, be uh, able to influence uh, Princeton in a more positive direction. So in January 1758, he leaves for Princeton. It's almost 200 miles away from uh, Stockbridge. One month later... Uh, February 1758, there's a smallpox uh, outbreak in Princeton. And so Edwards has this experimental inoculation that went wrong, resulting in his sudden death at the age of 54. Please don't try to use that and bring that into the modern age or something like that. To a daughter who was present at his death, he says this, It seems to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife. And as to my children, you are now like to be left fatherless, um, which I hope will be an inducement to you to seek a father that will never fail you. On hearing the death of her husband, uh, on hearing of the death of her husband, Sarah, his wife, wrote to another child, What shall I say? 
A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouth. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him for so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Two weeks later, their daughter Esther died. And then six months later, Sarah herself died. So it's a really rough time back then. And thus ended the illustrious career of Jonathan Edwards. Now, one of the things that we have done uh, throughout this, uh, this year is to try to offer some pros and cons, some criticisms and, uh, and some uh, positives of these major figures in church history. And uh, sometimes that's mostly positive. Sometimes there's a fair uh, mix between them. This is one of those where I don't have as many critiques because I, Edwards is my homeboy, right? I'm a team Edwards. And so I do want to be fair, offer a, a few humble criticisms. And, uh, and so the first thing that comes to mind for most people today is the fact that Edwards owned slaves. If you actually look up Something about Jonathan Edwards online, if you just Google search him, one of the first things that pops up uh, is that. Unfortunately, that's one of the first criticisms that pops up even on churches and, uh, and other uh, websites and so forth. And uh, that's certainly a true uh, fact about him. He owned at least two, maybe more, including uh, uh, Titus, Venus, and Leah. Leah might just be the Christian name of, uh, of Venus, though. I'm not going to defend Edwards on uh, on this. I'm not going to defend him on owning slavery. But before we decide we're going to burn all of his books and topple his statues and so forth, I think we need to understand what's really going on here. So here are a few facts to keep in mind about Jonathan Edwards as it relates to slavery. The first fact that I think is very pertinent is that he was an outspoken critic of the slave trade in general, and he was an outspoken critic of cruelty towards slaves. That was something he was actually known for. Number two, he argued vehemently for the spiritual equality of whites and blacks and Native Americans, uh, by the way. As an implication of the above, his was one of the first churches in the area to receive both blacks and Indians into uh, full membership. In fact, his slave Leah was actually baptized in the church, and her name is included in early membership roles. Fourth, many of his personal disciples became ardent abolitionists a generation later. I think that says something about his influence, about his beliefs, and so forth. And then fifth, there is no record of him mistreating or abusing any of his slaves. In fact, the opposite is true. And this final point is really uh, important. I think in all of the narratives that I've ever read on this subject, all of his slaves adored him. And, uh, And so I think this summary from another pastor I think is really helpful for us because we're reading things through a lens Even the type of slavery that we think of isn't the type of slavery that's being practiced there in the uh, 18th century. The type of slavery we think of is a generation or actually a a century later in the late 19th century. And so I think this is a a really helpful uh, summary of, uh, of the distinction. The issue is not whether we think slavery as an institution was a good thing. It was not. It was not whether the slave trade was wicked and cruel. Of course it was. The issue is not whether there were numerous masters who mistreated their slaves. Of course there were. The issue is whether or not Edwards followed the teaching of the New Testament for men in his position. In other words, we need a lot more nuance than simply saying all slaveholders were good or all slaveholders were bad. I don't think that kind of reductionism is actually helpful or fair. Here's why we talked about the need for nuance on this topic in the past and why we're talking about it again today. Because that's the last thing that our culture wants is nuance. All right, But once we discard nuance, once we just simply say all slaveholders are good or all slaveholders are bad or something like that, the implications of that, if you really pull that thread, you see the implications, what unravels is actually quite tragic. Pretty soon we aren't just toppling Edward's statue but most of the rest of uh, church history as well. And then you're going to have to deal with slave owners in the Bible, guys like Abraham and Philemon. And then the Apostle Paul, you begin to pull him and he unravels because he doesn't universally condemn slavery. Pretty soon we've just begun to stand in judgment on the sufficiency and authority of God's word. That's my concern here. 
My concern is not to defend Jonathan Edwards. My concern is to defend the authority and sufficiency of God's word. And in God's wisdom, for whatever reason, in God's wisdom, he chose not to universally condemn all forms of slavery or all slaveholders. So I'm not prepared to do so either. We've talked about that before. Feel free to listen to some of those theological whipping classes. Second critique, though, on Edwards is legalism. This is something we've found in most of our theological heroes because we find it in most of our own lives as well. I think if we're all honest, we would recognize at some level we're all legalists. So I'm going to pull a few examples from a list of resolutions we'll talk about uh, shortly. He made these as a young man. I think a number of them are admirable and inspiring, but I think a few of them show a tendency toward legalism. For example, he says, resolve never to utter anything that is sportive or a matter of laughter on a Lord's Day. He would hate Zach's preaching, all right? Resolved to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. Now, a few qualifications I think are necessary here. It's really easy to look at someone, especially someone in church history, and to accuse them of legalism, but we really need to be careful. Sometimes what appears to be legalism isn't actually legalistic, right? For example, if you were to say, I get up early every morning and I read my Bible, that's not legalistic. Not necessarily, all right? What is legalistic? If someone says, I get up early and I read my Bible so that God will love me more. That's legalistic. Or if someone says, I get up early and I read my Bible and you must as well, or else you're not a Christian. That's legalistic, right? But just simply someone saying, I have resolved to do this because I find this to be a helpful practice for me and it, it encourages and stirs my affections for the Lord, that's not legalistic at all. And so sometimes what we do is we look at someone and we say, they have all these resolutions, that must be legalistic. It's not necessarily the case. A lot of the things that Edwards is going to write, he wouldn't say you necessarily have to do it. And a lot of them he wouldn't say would necessarily make him more loved by God. And uh, so we need to be careful of that. Or another example, you read uh, about someone in church history, they forbid dancing. We saw that about uh, John Calvin, all right? Well, if we're gonna, before we're going to accuse him of legalism, we probably need to understand what kind of dancing is he talking about, right? Is he talking about like two-stepping or is he talking about the lambada, right, the, the forbidden dance or something like that? Is he talking about something that's actually obscene, something that's actually inappropriate, and, uh, and so just simply knowing the word, we might not understand the concept uh, behind it. So with all those qualifications in mind, why do I say that uh, nevertheless we can see hints of legalism in Edwards? I think if you just read his resolutions, the resolutions themselves might not be all that legalistic. But I think the, the intent behind the resolution oftentimes is uh, legalistic. All right, Edward's original tent. Most of these were written when he was about 19 or 20 uh, years old. And, uh, and at the time, he was really wrestling with assurance of salvation. So for Edwards, one of the reasons that he wrote out these resolutions was so that he would find greater assurance of his salvation. In other words, rather than simply looking to the promises of God and the gospel for assurance, Edward seemed to look at how well he was doing at times, all right? If he was keeping to his resolutions, he felt more assured of his salvation. He felt more assured that he was saved, and that's legalistic, right? So uh, for all of those reasons, I think there is some legalism here. Then again, I do want to say again, these resolutions were written when he was like 20, all right? And so maybe that wasn't a perpetual struggle for him. Maybe he kept those resolutions, and it wasn't used in this legalistic sort of way later in life. I would hate to be judged by things that I said or wrote when I was... 20 or something like that. But the final criticism, final criticism of, uh, of Edwards is, uh, is that at times he was so absorbed in what should be primary that he could sometimes neglect what was secondary. And that really came out in the communion controversy. Right? Yes, studying is important. Again, we said uh, Edwards studied about 13 to 14 hours a day. In fact, it's of utmost importance. I think it's a really good thing that he devoted himself to, uh, to studying. Read the pastoral epistles, right? What is a pastor's number one charge? To preach, to teach, to guard, to study. Go through the pastoral epistles and look at the verbs that are used for pastors, for elders, for ministers. They are called to read, to study, to protect, to guard, to keep, to teach, to preach doctrine, 
That's what's ultimate. That's primary, all right? But that doesn't mean that everything else is unimportant, all right? We have a tendency to do that. We think something's primary, so I'm just going to neglect everything else, all right? Uh, knowing and building a relationship with the flock is also a good thing. And I think at times, Edwards sacrificed what was secondary for what was primary. I think Edwards could uh, neglect that at time. I think that's partly why his uh, congregation eventually turned on him, because they didn't have uh, as much of a personal relationship with him. I think he eventually allowed his enemies to stir up opposition because he didn't have enough capital when he actually uh, needed it. So those are some of the criticisms of, uh, of Edwards. There's more, I'm sure. I'm an optimist, though, so let's turn to the positives. I could, uh, I could talk about positives for, uh, for Jonathan Edwards for hours, but uh, I think Zach really wants to preach, so I'll be succinct. I'll mention five benefits of reading uh, Jonathan uh, Edwards, all right? Benefits of reading Jonathan Edwards. Number one, when I read Jonathan Edwards, I'm reminded of the depravity of man. In Edwards' day, sin was, uh, was being diluted, all right? The Enlightenment was influencing the church toward Arminianism, if not Pelagianism. Uh, that's one of the things that you actually see in some of the Enlightenment thinkers that, uh, that Zach talked about, uh, I think, last week as well. Uh, that the, the Enlightenment was influencing the church toward Arminianism, if not Pelagianism. So as, a, uh, uh, as Edward's biographer, uh, Ian Murray, writes, it had become assumed that men could be savingly related to Christ without any prior conviction about the sin which made their salvation necessary. And so Edwards kind of stood out amongst this. He wrote things like, Man is a leaf, a, a leaf driven by the wind, poor dust, a shadow, a nothing. And of himself, he says, he was an empty, helpless creature of small account in needing God's help in everything. There's two ways we can read this. There's one way that you read this and you think, that's really depressing, that's really morbid, that really affects my child's self-esteem. There's another way that you read that, and you see it actually is the exact opposite of that. It has the opposite. Ironically, it has the opposite effect because the more that we make of ourselves, the less we make of God. The less we make of his grace, the less we make of his mercy, the, the less we make of his love, and so forth. We begin to mix ourselves a little bit in it. And ironically, that actually ends up hurting our self-esteem because our self-esteem shouldn't be rooted in ourself. It should be rooted in our identity in union with uh, Christ. And so this is one of the things that you read about in, uh, in Edwards. He made much of God, and in doing so, he made little uh, of man. And, uh, and so Edwards is this reminder that man is fundamentally flawed, fundamentally wretched, and, uh, and that's not a bad thing because that leads to uh, the reality that God is fundamentally good and loving and gracious and kind. Second, a call to the necessity of regeneration. Remember, this is actually controversial in Edwards' day. It's not controversial in our day because we've been influenced by Edwards and revivalism and so forth. But a moral life in Edwards' day was kind of all that mattered. But Edwards says that isn't enough. You must be born again. You must be savingly converted. There's a Princeton professor, I forget who, I couldn't find it, but he once wrote this. Jonathan Edwards changed what I may call the center of thought in American theological thinking. No one but a man of genius could have made this change of emphasis so potent a fact in American church history. And what was the change? More than to any other man, to Edwards is due the importance which in American Christianity is attributed to the conscious experience of the penitent sinner as he passes into the membership of the invisible church, the doctrine of conversion was brought back into the center. In a sense, all of the great revivalists that we'll, uh, we'll study throughout the rest of the year, uh, even modern guys, guys like Billy Sunday and uh, guys like Billy Graham, all of those are kind of dependent on the rediscovery of this uh, need of uh, conversion. You aren't saved by your family. You're not saved by your culture. You're not saved by your upbringing. You're saved by being born again by grace unto faith. That's an emphasis of, uh, of Edwards that you see in his uh, writings. Third, a reliance upon the sovereignty of God. So building on the previous two, if, if man is fully fundamentally flawed, and if you need to be converted, then uh, building on those, you have to have this strong emphasis upon the sovereignty of God. So Edwards wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. 
R.C. Sproul called it the most important theological work ever published in America. I call it the hardest book I ever read, right? In it, Edwards deals this death blow to the Arminian assumption of free will by demonstrating that the will is always inclined toward whatever it naturally finds most pleasing. Since sinners love what? What does sinners love? Sinners love sin, right? Sinners going to sin, right? So since sinners love sin, where is their will going to incline toward? Sin, always. You can't overcome that. You can't just will it into existence because your will already wills sin. It takes the sovereign grace of God to renew the will, which is, again, the idea of regeneration. This, uh, the will is free to choose whatever it loves, but it isn't free to love that which is contrary to its nature. Just like I'm free to breathe air because humans breathe air, but I'm not free to breathe underwater because that's contrary to my nature. So sinners are free to sin, but they're not free to overcome their sin nature. They must be born again, resulting in freedom to choose Christ. And this will be one of the many distinctions, again, of the first, between the first and the uh, second Great Awakenings. The first was grounded in these Calvinistic assumptions Whereas the second was more Arminian or even Pelagian. That's why the first is going to start with Edward just standing up and reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, a text about the holiness and the wrath of God. And the second is going to be built upon and cultivated by things like techniques, uh, better techniques to manipulate, things like the altar call and the anxious bench and all of these sorts of things that we'll talk about when we talk about the Second Great Awakening. But in reading Edwards, you're reminded of the sovereignty of God. Edwards had this great God-centeredness, this Godward vision of all things. And reading him, we're reminded that the glory of God is the end for which God created the world, which is the name of another one of his books. So you have this reliance upon the sovereignty of God. Fourth thing that I uh, get in reading Edwards, you see this merging of the head and the heart. Right? Here was one of the most intelligent men uh, of the last few centuries, maybe in all of history, and yet you read him, and his re- reading is not like this dry, dull, ivory tower, theologian, academic sort of guy. He writes like King David in the Psalms. He writes like a man who yearns for God, who longs for God, who hungers and thirsts for God. Right? Christianity wasn't simply the set of beliefs that affected the mind, but also affected the heart. It wasn't just about knowledge, it was also affections and desires, from his exposition uh, of, uh, of uh, 1 Corinthians 13 called Charity and Its Fruit, Edwards wrote, He who would set the hearts of other men on fire with the love of Christ must himself burn with love. So I'm reminded as I read him of this idea of, uh, of orthodoxy on fire, of theology being this kindling uh, that would uh, inflame his worship. I'm reminded there's no spectrum of head and heart whereby if we increase one, we have to decrease the other. And, uh, and so again, the goal is theology on fire, and I see that as I read uh, Jonathan Edwards. In fact, that's one of the things that drives him, is the fact that he sees in his day something that's the exact opposite in our day. He sees uh, dry academic uh, knowledge without actual affection. But you see how you can fuse those, and actually should fuse those uh, together in him. Lastly, uh, I get from, uh, from Edwards the pursuit of holiness. From reading Edwards, you're reminded God hates sin. And you really get a taste that uh, Edwards hates sin as well. I've mentioned before, Edwards wrote these lists of resolutions, about 70 or so resolutions as a fairly young man. And though we mentioned some of the, the original purposes of them are overly legalistic, nevertheless, I think it's admirable to read about how seriously he took his pursuit of godliness not as some begrudging obligation, but as an opportunity for him to grow in grace. That was his goal, to be sanctified, to, uh, to, uh, to experience greater joy and affections and so forth. Writing resolutions at this time in, in history wasn't strange. In fact, it was fairly common from the Puritans well into the 18th century. Right? Even today, we have New Year's resolutions, right? But what was unique was the type of resolutions that he would make, right? What was on your list of New Year's resolutions for this past year? Get in shape, go on vacation, quit biting your fingernails, whatever it is. Let's look at what Edwards wrote. These are just a, a handful of those. We'll end with these. Resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it 
in the most profitable way I possibly can. That reminds you in the, in the, uh, the Pauline epistles where he would say things like redeeming the time and so forth, making the best use of the time. Resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought. That reminds you of the Sermon on the Mount where it says, don't seek treasures in this world, uh, don't seek reward in this world, but reward in the world to come. Resolve to examine carefully and constantly what one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt of the love of God and so direct all of my forces against it. Resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Resolve to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and wherein I have denied myself also at the end of every week, month, and year. I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think uh, I shall wish I had done, supposing I lived to old age. Resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. Resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. So Edwards knew God is sovereign over sanctification, but also that we are, as uh, Hebrews says, to strive for holiness. And you see that pursuit in his own life and writings. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for uh, the gift that you give us of church history, that we can look back and, uh, and we can uh, find uh, uh, mentors, that we can find friends, that we can find uh, not only villains, but we can also find heroes. Not heroes without flaws. Everyone's flawed except for your son. And so uh, we're grateful that, uh, that at the end of the day we can test the lives of an Edwards or a Calvin or an Augustine or a Luther or whatever it might be by the perfect example of your son and uh, by the perfect deposit of the apostolic truth in your scripture. And so I pray that uh, whatever is good about Edwards that might be good for us to emulate, we might do, and whatever is bad that we might, uh, we might cast off. And so I pray that you would bless us, give us... Uh, more than anything, give us a, a, a hope in the sovereignty of uh, your son and give us a desire uh, to not only be uh, uh, intellectually engaged, but also have affections that burn uh, for you. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen.